Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I'm here with my co-host, Matt Scott. I'm kind of over here. Yeah, I'm here. Exactly. We're here with Brad McCarthy, Australian explorer, also yep. the Max Tracks guy. Yep. Yeah. We're so very, we're, gonna, we're very we're lucky. Gonna. Very lucky to have Brad on, one of the most prolific travelers in all of Australia. He started the Dirty Weekends book series, which anyone who's traveled Australia knows that it is a, a wealth of information for traveling the backcountry of Australia. And amazing stories. Brad and I have done some fun adventures together. Matt and Brad have done some fun adventures together. In fact, we drove across Australia all the way to Perth a few years ago, across the Great Australian Bight and everything. That was a fantastic trip. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Podcast. Thanks for having me go. That's welcome. Yeah. Well, where should we start? So I want to know about, well, actually I know all of these things, but, but they're fascinating. So. But they're really fascinating. Yeah. So you've always kind of been into four wheel drives, um, started off as a plumber and then guidebooks and then max tracks and then running a major company. And just the, the trajectory of Brad has just been like up but I think the coolest thing with Brad is that Brad always makes time to explore, right? Yeah, like, you've never gotten away from your, what you love. Uh, it's in my DNA. And special thanks to Equipped for supporting today's podcast. More than 15 years ago, Equipped Expedition Outfitters became the first American company to import the best in breed vehicle expedition equipment from across the globe. Since their humble beginnings, they have risen to become a go-to leader within the adventure travel industry, continuing to deliver a diverse portfolio of reliable, long-lasting products backed by unparalleled customer service. From shelter solutions, from Easy On, to portable fridges from National Luna, to aluminum storage boxes from Alubox, their ever-growing selection of best-in-class gear increases your capability, comfort, and confidence during any adventure. Visit equippedone.com to gear up. Yeah. I, I've got to see what's over the hill around that bend. Yeah. And I've been like that since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I think it started, uh, my old man used to look after, uh, like knock down sugar mills and power stations and those sort of things back in the day. And he'd throw my brother and I in the car and he'd, we'd go for a drive to have a look at a job. And that job might be a thousand k's from home, but we'd have a packet of biscuits and a couple of cans of soft drink and that'd be it. You know, so, uh, but he would be, we'd be driving to somewhere, to a town somewhere and uh, he'd see a dirt road and he'd turn off the dirt road and we'd drive down to a beautiful beach, something like yeah. that. And I think that was ingrained in me from a young age. And um, it just it just went from there. So, you know, when I was uh, 15, I got off, offered an apprenticeship as a plumber. And at that stage, unemployment in Australia was 11%. My old man said, get a job as a plumber. You'll be 19, you'll have a plumber's license to print money. And uh, if you don't like it, you can go and do something else. It wasn't what I really wanted to do with my life, but... You know, the opportunity was there. I took it and I did that for about 20 years. Got to the point where I was working in major construction sites, you know, hospitals, shopping centers, hotels, casinos, that sort of stuff. And the weekend would come and I would head for the hills. It was my escape from, you know, the noisy city to the beautiful natural environment we have in Southeast Queensland. And I just, over the years, built up this knowledge of all these amazing places within three or four hours drive of my home because I only had weekends to spare. I had two or three days to go and explore these places. So I'd go to the local government map shop and get the forestry maps or the national park maps and plot a route and, and you know, look at the map and go, oh, there's a, there's a waterfall there. There's a patch of rainforest. Mm. There's a, there's a few creek crossings to make it interesting. And I just, uh, I'd go exploring and I just loved it. But in the back of my head, I was sort of thinking, oh, I'm, I've spent a lot of money on fuel and repairs and, yeah. and, and gear. And why am I doing this? It was basically building my skills building my knowledge of the place and um, and that became valuable. You know, I'd, I'd get to a job on a Monday, the car would be dirty, I'd still have all my camping gear in the car on the roof and guys would come up on the job site and say, oh, Mac, where have you been? And I'd say, oh, 
Fraser Island or the Conondales or Sundown National Park. This is pre-internet. This is like the mid-90s. I'd have a, a photo album, so I'd bring a photo album and show them the, show them the place that I was talking yeah. about and, and they'd be like, wow, how, how do I get there? What do I need to know? Mm-hmm. So I end, in the end, I ended up with these uh, fact sheets. So I had a, a mud map and the details of, you know, where to, where it starts, where it finishes, how far it was, what the terrain was like, what you, what the highlights of the place were. And a little mud map with the number one, two, three, four along the map showing you where to go, what to mm. see. And, you know, I was on a job at one stage where I had, I was uh, looking after a major casino building in the middle of Brisbane and there was, I had 50 plumbers working under me and uh, I had a folder with all the plumbing stuff in it and I had another folder <laughs> with all the dirty weekend stuff in it. And I'd be constantly handing out fact sheets to people. And, and one day I, went, I came out of a site meeting and the head architect for this job sort of pulled me aside and said, I heard you're the man to talk to about places to go four-wheel driving in southeast Queensland. And I said, yeah. He said, we've just bought a land cruiser and a camper trailer. And he said, I want to get the family into it. I want to, you know, I know what's out there, but I don't know how to find it. I gave him a couple of fact sheets over the next few months and he came in one day and he said, we're hooked to you what else have you got? And I said, what else do you want to do? What do you want to see? He said to me, you should put this in a book. He said, this is gold. You can't find this anywhere. And that was for me the light bulb moment to go, I can go and do what I love and hopefully make a living out of it. Yeah. And um, so I spent the next 12 months basically going out, doing the trips, meticulously mapping every turn, every bridge, every gate, every cattle grid. And I don't like to backtrack. So I tried to make the tours starting at A and finishing at Z and not coming back or backtracking. You know? Sure. Spent the next 12 months doing it. I'm, a, I'm still a one-finger typer, so I spent the next <laughs> the next 12 months every night working under my next-door neighbor's house on his little tiny computer typing up spreadsheets <laughs> with the, the, the distance between the trip notes, the, the details, and then the GPS coordinates for every single trip note. Launched the book at the Brisbane Fall Drive Show in 1999. I had a wall of photos, my old 60 series cruiser covered in dirt, and people were just coming up looking at the photos, picking up the book and going, take my money. Yeah. And I went, I'm onto something here. I ended up doing six editions of that guide. And in the meantime, I did a, a guide to Fraser Island, which is the world's largest sand island and one of my favorite places. So beautiful. In fact, if I remember your story correctly, it was Fraser that got you your first four-wheel drive, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it went on a day trip from the Sunshine Coast to Fraser Island and I was just blown away that, you know, something so magnificent, you know, it's, a, it's the world's largest sand island, all national park, you know, it's got over a hundred freshwater lakes, some of them surrounded by rainforest, beautiful white sand, just a magnificent paradise. place. It is, it paradise. is yeah. The traditional owners call it Gurry, which means paradise and it truly is, you know, so... We went there and I went, this place is three hours from my house. I'm getting a four-wheel drive. So I bought an ex-army Land Rover and uh, the old soft top. Sure. Had oh, many, you many... usually don't tell people that. Yeah. <laughs> I try to keep that on the download. <laughs> Being so a Toyota start, man that I am. It all started with a Land Rover. Yeah. Race. Uh, I think common, that makes all of us here. Common theme. <laughs> and then I drove a mate's Land Cruiser one day and I went, sell that. <laughs> Get a Land Cruiser. <laughs> so that was what really got me into it. And I thought, if this is three hours from my house, I'm coming back. You know, I'm yeah. getting a four-wheel drive and I'm coming back and I've probably been to Fraser Island 50 times in the last 30 years and I can never get enough of the place. It's just, it's magnificent and it's um, yeah, it's one of those special places in the world and for me it's in my backyard so mm. it makes it even better. I mean it's just a, literally a run up the beach for you now. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty handy. I mean, when was the first time you were on Fraser Island like uh, for your own trip? Like when did you start doing the guidebook to Fraser Island? Um, that would have been 2001. Okay. Um, the first trip was probably nine, mid mid eighties, I think, okay. when we we went on a tour, and then I think I bought the, the old 
landing in about 1988 or 89, something like that. Gotcha. It's one of those things where now, well, I live on the Sunshine Coast now and it's it's a 15-minute drive to the ferry and then it's a 100-kilometre drive up the beach and then a 20-minute drive on the ferry and on Fraser Island. So, yeah, And then yeah. I've got you know 125 kilometres of beach that I can drive on and numerous kilometres of tracks to explore and yeah. forests and lakes and it's just heaven. And what's that beach that you drive on before you get on the ferry to Fraser? Uh, T.Y. Beach. That's it. Yeah. And I, yeah. I drove that Earth Cruiser on that. That was fantastic. Yeah. It's an amazing place. Yeah, it was so cool. I mean, the whole area of Southeast Queensland, like, I, I don't know, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for it because of you. I mean, just all the times I've been over there and the things I've been able to see that, you know, going to the Glasshouse Mountains and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I really encourage like any of our, any of our listeners that if you're looking for a beautiful place to explore and you don't maybe necessarily have the time to drive across Australia or do Cape York or do the Simpson or, or whatever. Southeast Queensland is, I mean, truthfully, one of the most beautiful places on the planet, mm, I think, yeah. to explore by four-wheel drive. Yeah, And, and Brisbane, what a yeah, city. Yeah, Brisbane, such I mean, a special place. It's my place. favorite city in Australia. I'm in sure. the 32 Olympics too. Uh, oh, really? Is that yeah. a, that's a, that's exciting. Very exciting. A lot of infrastructure happening at the moment, you know, road wow. upgrades and rail sure. upgrades and all that yeah. sort of thing. So a bit of road works and that around, but where I am on the Sunshine Coast is not really affecting us at, at this stage. Mm. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it, it is an amazing part of the world. And I think it's just its location, you know, its latitude is such that you get the, the tropical and the, and the subtropical species and also the temperate species. So mm. the diversity of wildlife is quite amazing. And the same with the, the flora, you know, the plants can sort of grow in Brisbane and the Southeast Queensland region don't grow too much further north or too much further south you know the population of southeast queensland is probably about five million people significant yeah yeah and queensland itself is you know if you combine say california uh, arizona nevada and utah they, they'll all fit into queensland so yeah, yeah queensland's <laughs> a, big a big place it's a big place it's to crazy explore. like when, when you leave brisbane how long it takes you to get anywhere like, <laughs> yeah. i mean i remember the first trip we did up well not your first trip but the first trip i did up cape york with you it felt like we were driving for two weeks straight <laughs> And then, and then all of a sudden, Papua New Guinea is there, and, <laughs> and then can't go any farther. And then you're like, "But I don't want to go back." <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a big place, and that's that's just Queensland. So you know, it, to drive across to the, the west coast, we've done a few trips where you know it's a good solid week if you if you're nonstop driving to get yeah. to the west coast. You know, from Brisbane to Perth is about four thousand two hundred kilometers. So pretty much, you know, New York to San Fran or New York sure. to LA. You know, not much in between. I, and those I was, are dirt roads. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of dirt. Yeah, you can't go east to west on pavement unless you're along the coast. Yeah, if you're in the middle, you're on dirt. Yeah, Highway One basically circumnavigates the country. And, yeah, and if you want to go through the middle, there's it's, it's dirt. Which highways that are maybe four lanes wide, and every now and again there's a there's a tarred section with some aircraft landing strips on it for the <laughs> flying doctor. Yeah, I always try and you know remind people that it, it's not that the infrastructure in Australia is poor. It's not. It's just that it's different. You know, you're you're on a two lane highway, and then you're still going through the small towns. It just takes longer to get places you know that the bruce highway for example you know that runs from brisbane where does that end does that go to the cans? cans yeah yeah that's for most of it's two lane you yeah. know, and that's the major road in queensland and i mean i think that's wonderful and awesome but you know americans tend to get this opinion like oh well I'm going to go over there and I'm going to drive from Brisbane to Cairns in a day. And then I'm going to go to Uluru, Uluru the, the next day. And you're like, <laughs> no, you're no, not. no, no, you're not. No, 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 no chance. Not happening. No, so. Everything is a long way apart. Most of the population, I think 90% of the population is along the coastline, mm. you know, and, and, focused on the big cities like the capital cities of Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, everyone, everyone would know. The rest of the country is fairly sparsely populated. You know, a lot of little country towns, there might be 15 yeah. people. Wonderful people in them though. I yeah. mean, so we've kind of talked about where you came from. We've talked about 
traveling, you know, a little bit in Southeast Queensland. But what I know Brad for, and I think you know Brad for, are these massive trips where you're gone for a month or two months and you don't necessarily bring like a lot of like luxury stuff with you, so to speak. Like you're not, not in an yeah. earth roamer, you know, you're usually in a land cruiser and then you have a swag and you throw it on the ground and you know, you're going like it charges you, you know, like I think everybody around you knows like Brad has to get out and you come back with this you know, this, this fire in you. I mean, what was that? What was your first big trip? Like what was the transition from Southeast Queensland, Brad, to crossing Australia, to crossing yeah. Australia and doing these crazy adventures? Well, once I had the success with the Southeast Queensland book, I thought, well, you know, there's a need for this right around Australia. You know, yeah. people, most people are working. have only got a few days to have a, have a break. And, you know, as I said, Queensland's a massive state. So the plan was to do a guide for each region. So I, the next guide I did was central Queensland. So it's a coastline between, you know, Bundaberg and say Bowen on the east coast yeah. and out as far as the Carnarvons and the Great Sandstone Belt out in the central Queensland area. So I did that guide and then the plan was to do a guide for North Queensland and Cape York and then do one for the Northern Territory, one for the for the Kimberley region in northwestern WA. I've not been there yet. Yeah, it's a magnificent, it's amazing. magnificent place. Hint, hint, Brad. We yes. haven't been there. <laughs> Have you not been there yet either? No. Oh, yeah. Just give I've me heard. a call. <laughs> that, that's been the universal thing. If I ask people who are well-traveled in Australia, yeah. I'm like, what's the most remote, beautiful they all say the Kimberley. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing place. So, you know, so the idea was I would just do a series of guides around Australia. I would just keep doing laps of Australia and updating the book every couple of years. And, yeah. and you know, the books were selling well. So I was like, I can make a good living and I can be doing what I love every day of the week, you know, and that was the plan. And then I was doing the um, the field research for the North Queensland and Cape York guide. And I, I drove out onto this remote beach and I was on my own. I had, I was meeting with a mate in a- Do you remember what beach it was? Yeah. Because I want to go there one day. <laughs> it's a place called Cape Bowling Green. Okay. So it's south of Townsville, but um, back in those days it was quite remote. And um, I drove out onto this beach and I started, because there was a, there's an old lighthouse and some graves and that at the end of this peninsula. So it's just a sand spit that pokes out into the Coral Sea and it's about 30, 40 kilometers long. So I'm driving along the beach following what I assume was a little Suzuki or something. It was only leaving a very shallow tyre track yeah. and I'm in a three and a half tonne land cruiser <laughs> and I started to bog down through this sand and I thought, this isn't good. And then I look ahead and I see dead mangrove trees coming down to the water's edge. I thought, you know, mangrove mud, that stuff's not real good. So I, I tried to turn the car around to, to leave and I broke through this crust of sand into this black mangrove mud and just the car just bellied out and I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> so I got on the radio, no one within Cooey of, of you know, the radio, nobody around. This is pre, you know, satellite phones and mobile phones. So I thought, well, this is it. So um, I had a hand winch. I didn't want to go any further forward. I wanted to get, I tried to go back on my tracks and just couldn't get any traction. You know, the wheels are just spinning in midair. So um, got the winch out, got the hand winch out, got the old turfer, found a tree up on the up on the sand dune and ran every single rope and strap that I had out to that, tied it on, got it going, put the tension on it and pulled the tree out of the ground. Then there was another tree on about a 45 degree angle and did the same thing, tried it, pulled it out of the ground. So then I thought I'm going to have to get the tire out from underneath and bury the tire and winch right. off the tire, right? So, and of course it's sitting on the belly and the tire was under the back of the back of the fuel tank. So I've, I had to dig all this slop out from under the car, <laughs> get the wheel out, you know, dig a trench, hook it all up and, and start winching off the, off the spare tire. So in the meantime, you know, this is hours going by and the tide started to turn. So the tide's lapping under the car. So I'm, I'm dealing with all this slippery, greasy, black, oily mud and it's, you know, 30 degrees and sunny and I'm, I'm just, you know, working my butt off to try and get this car out with this hand winch. And, you know, you're doing, you've used a winch, sure. you know, it's, you're doing half an inch at a time and, and making a little bit of progress, but I was shoveling dry sand in. I was, I put the floor mats in, I was shoving whatever I could in under the tide 
tyres and I was picking up bits of driftwood and like logs and things and shoving them in to try and get up onto the sand. Everything, you know, things would slide off and get jammed underneath and I'd have to try, I had an air jack, I'm trying to jack the car up to get the debris out and so it got to the point where it's probably six or seven hours, I eventually started to get the back up onto the sand again so I jumped in and just reversed over the winch and the cables and just got the hell out of there up on the high ground, you know, and um, I just laid down on the beach and I thought, that really sucked, there's got to be a better way than that. If you had your wife with you or your family with you, you'd be getting divorced because it was <laughs> such, sure. a, such a traumatic thing, I, you know, I nearly lost the car. I'm looking at the high tide and the, t- the high tide marks, you know, six foot above the roof of the car and I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a goner and I'm going to yeah. be walking back to the nearest town. So eventually, you know, I got it out. I just thought, no, never again. If I'm traveling solo around Australia and, I, and I'm going to be encountering these sort of situations all the time, I want something that I can rely on to get me out every time. So that was the impetus for Max Tracks, you know. So I spent the next couple of months doing the, the research on that that guidebook and then I came home and, you know, I've been getting 4x4 Australia magazine since day one and I trawled through the magazines and, and there was nothing that sort of was designed to do that job, you know, and I thought, well, I want it, so I'm going to make it. And so that was a whole, you know, four-year process of how do I do it? I, I went home and I was I was doing some renovations on the house at the time and I had the back stair treads, the timber stair treads that were about a foot wide and about two inches thick. You still have those by chance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, wow. So I thought, you know. I Version need, one. Yeah, because yeah. the issue was like when I was shoving things under the tire because everything was greasy, there was not, nothing, the tire couldn't grab on anything. It just, everything was just sliding all over the place. So I thought I need, I need grip. Whatever it is, it's got to have grip on the top of it. So I got some stainless steel plates made up about oh, probably three inches square, radius the corners about half an inch, bent the corners up about three quarters, about half an inch. Or three eighths of an inch, and then fitted them, bolted them onto these timber stair treads. And then the next time I did a trip, I took these with me. And once you got onto the the metal teeth, the tire, the car would just launch out of the hole. And I'm like, that's what I need. <laughs> but these things were hardwood, and they were heavy. You know, they were probably twenty kilos each. And once they're covered in mud and crap, you know, it's <laughs> thirty five sure. kilos each. So I thought I need something that's light. So I had. So what I did basically was I, I wrote my wish list of you know I want handles so you can carry it, and maneuver it. I want to be able to use it as a shovel if you're digging in sand. You know, it's got to have grip on the top and the bottom. It's got to have ramps so you can jam it under the tire and the tire can actually grab hold of it you know it's got to have those features that you know make it that work, work that make yeah. it work i want to be able to take i want to be able to take 20 of them so if i'm going somewhere remote and i know i'm going to be in trouble i've got a portable road on the roof so i had my wish list and i and actually created a magazine ad and it was basically a photo of a car bogged in the middle of a salt pan in the middle of australia and it said ever been bogged is a solution and it had the, the list of the features of the of the max tracks and um so that was my spec sheet and i wasn't sure what to do next i, I was sort of lost as to how do i how do i produce this because i want 20 or 30 of them i just had me watching tv show one night and there was a guy came on and he just walks down the street with a microphone and a cameraman and walks up to someone and says, G'day, I'm Brad, what's your name? And gets their life story out of him over the next half an hour. And he happened to, I happened to turn it on one night and he's talking to this guy who was an industrial designer. The interviewer said, so what's an industrial designer do? And he said, well, if you've got a TV or a toaster or a lawnmower or a car, an industrial designer designed that, that product. So I got the yellow pages out and there's three or four industrial designers in Brisbane and one of them who had won already won uh, four Australian Design Awards. I thought, well, these guys know what they're doing. So I got on the phone the next morning and said, I've um, got this idea of this product that I'm trying to make. You know, Can you help me? And they said, that's that's what we do. Come and have a chat. So I went in and then um, we spent the next probably three years making proto- designing it, making prototypes. So we would get a, a block of uh, HDP, so high density polyethylene, and see and see the profile out of it, and then we'd go and test it and go, oh, that's not sure, not quite right. You know, it's not not ideal. It needs this, needs that, and we made about half a dozen prototypes, and sort of got to the point where we think that's that's going to work. Went and tested it, and went, yeah, that works. And then the next thing was making the tool, so the mold, and that was 
like a, a big investment and a big plunge. And, and I had a few people yeah, say to me. mortgage the house. Yeah. Else, I had sure. a few people say to me, are you sure about this? And I was like, well, I want it. And, you know, there's, if I've got a need, there's probably other people that have a similar need. So I think, you know, if I if I do it right, I think, you know, it might be a product that I can sell. Went and saw the bank manager and he said, uh, so what's your plan? I said, well, make them and, and hopefully someone buys them. And that was it. So, you know, remortgaged the house. <laughs> sure. Mortgaged the house and um, went and had the tool done. And then once we had the tool, then we could test the material. So we we – the guys, obviously, the industrial designers had relationships with the plastics suppliers. So DuPont, you know, a German company called uh, Groupol, GE Plastics, and a couple of Australian companies were making different versions of, of nylon. You know, all the experts had said, you know, we think nylon is the right material for this product, what it's got to cope with, you know, the, the conditions it's going to be used under and all that sort of thing. So they all gave us samples of material and we had maybe five or six grades of their different var- variants of nylon and we trialled them, put them in the tool and we ended up with all these different boards in different colours and different materials that we went out and tested and basically did the Goldilocks until we got it just right, which took a while. It was probably 12 months of testing and refining and testing and refining and then we went, yeah, we think that's the material and then we went and set off on a, a 10,000k lap around Queensland. So we basically left Brisbane, drove to Cape York, drove out to the Simpson Desert, crossed the Simpson Desert and back to Brisbane in a month. So 10,000 k's in a month towing a, a camper trailer. Which but, pretty much guarantees getting stuck. Yeah, and in the height of summer. So, you know, sure. out in the desert it was 50 degrees Celsius and, and up north it was probably high 30s. So the sand's like lava, you know, and it's uh, you're guaranteed you're going to get stuck. So every time we got stuck, we more or less set up a tripod, put a camera on it, filmed the video of us using the Max Tracks to get out. So at the end of the trip we had probably 10 or 15 instances of actually doing a legitimate recovery using the boards. So then we went to the four-wheel drive show in Brisbane, almost the same spot where I'd launched the book about five years earlier, had the Max Tracks on display and I had a pallet of Max Tracks sitting there, had the hundred from the trip, you know, covered in red dirt and we had the screen playing with all the recoveries on just on loop. Ron Moon came up and had a look at, was standing there sure. looking at the video and I was talking to a potential customer at the time and Ron Moon was the editor of 4x4 magazine, right. you know, very experienced, deal. Very experienced yeah. guy and um, he's looking at the video and he's shaking his head and I'm standing behind him seeing him shaking his head like side to side thinking oh, that's not good but oh, Ron Moon shaking his head you know and I went up and I said oh Ron how are you and I'd, and I'd sent him books over the years to give me a plug in the magazine and he said Brad is this yours and I said yeah I said I saw you shaking your head he goes I'm shaking my head thinking why didn't I think of it he said, oh, I can think of so many instances where this would have just saved me so much grief you know and he said um, this is just sheer genius he goes you're going to sell a million of these and I said I hope you're right because I've put the house on it and that was it so he said send me some and I'll, I'll play with them and I'll, I'll give you a write up in the magazine and it sort of went from there you know mm. but the hardest part was initially was convincing people that two bits of plastic could get your car out mm. you know, a lot of people like oh, that's not going to work people like hated them at first yeah. like over here like it was like I'm not using those that's never going to work it was such a it's a learning curve like anything new any new technology yeah, yeah. It was like that in Australia, you know, people were very sceptical, but they'd look at the video and go, oh, it seems to work. And then you know, people would buy them and go and use them and then come back and or send us an email and say, holy cow, I would have lost my car on the beach if I hadn't, didn't have the Max Tracks. Oh, that was what it was for me. I mean, I had used them successfully, but I always had a winch or I, you know, there was some other way to get out. But yeah, when we were in the canning stock and 14 hours, we were stuck. We built a road. That was the only way we got out. We were so deep in the mud. That's basically how it, how it all came about. And then it just went from there. It took us, took us quite a few years to sort of get a roll on. And, and actually get people believing in the product. And then, you know, because they're bright orange and they're big and people put them on their roof rack, we would have people ring us and say, um, 
My mate's got some of those orange things. Do you sell them? <laughs> <laughs> those spiky orange yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's how it started. It just sort of went from there and, and you know, then we went to SEMA in 2010. I remember that. That was quite memorable for us because yeah. we rocked up and I just had um, three or four mates with me and um, we'd booked it in and we got to SEMA and walked into the exhibition hall in Vegas and I was like, oh, we're playing with the big boys now. You know, Ford was there, Toyota was there, Goodyear, yeah. all the big brands, ARB and TJM and everything, all the, all the Australian all drive equipment companies and I was like, like, oh, we might be out of our depth here, you know. We spent a couple of days in the Home Depot car park building a, a pyramid out of plywood to um, make a sand dune. So our display at SEMA was a, uh, we had an FJ Cruiser all sign written and we had it bogged in a sand dune with the Max Track sticking out of the front of it. And we used real sand, so we had a, we, we had boxes and boxes of red sand that we, we made this <laughs> sand dune out of. People were just coming up and shaking their head and, and we, we picked up probably half a dozen international customers at, at that show and a couple of awards for best new product in the, in the off-road space. So we, you know, we walked away from SEMA thinking well, we can play with the big boys. You know, we've, we've got the right product and we've, we've done it well. You can do it. It can be done. So that 10,000 K trip, was that at the time the longest you had kind of been out in a four wheel drive? Yeah, that was probably the, the longest. That was a month and it was, yeah, a month just living out of the car. You know, I mean, I'd done a lot before that. So I, I, my car was pretty well set up. I had a good fridge in the back. I just used to sleep on a stretcher and just boxes of food and, and spare parts and tools. And, you know, that was about it. But it was, you know, I was driving a Toyota, so reliability wise I knew that sure I didn't have to take too many spares and, and if I did need something there wasn't help not too far away yeah despite Queensland being quite vast there's a Toyota dealer in every town just about mm-hmm. and, and you're Mr. Land Cruiser yeah well I, I always say to people if you want to go there and come back alive it'll be a Land Cruiser <laughs> if there's a great there's a great Australian commercial that they ran and it was it was like a, a border checkpoint to go out into the desert and you know people would drive up in some lesser vehicle and they'd turn them around and send them <laughs> back and they would only let the people through with a Hilux yeah. or a Land Cruiser. But, but I think it was until, a clever ad. It was a very clever ad. Until very recently, there there just weren't that many vehicles other than Land Cruisers that truthfully could put up with Australian the conditions. The yeah, GU Patrol. patrol. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, Land Cruiser arrived in Australia in the 50s when they were building the Snowy Mountains yeah. hydroelectric scheme. So um, Leslie Tease, who had that contract for that, imported a, a heap of them from Japan and they were the 40, shorty 40s. And they were mountain climbing through the Snowy Mountains and people sort of kept them afterwards and went, this thing's unreal. There's the Land River guys in Australia love to tell that same story too because on the Snowy Mountain Hydro Project, they were actually the first vehicles and I want to say they were Series 1s. Yeah. And then they became Land Cruisers for a reason. <laughs> so yeah, it's but it's, it's funny because when you, like, you know, the, the Great Dividing Range runs on the east coast of Australia pretty much from top to bottom. And once you cross that mountain range, it's pretty flat all the way to the other side of the country. It is. There's a few little bumps along the way, but it's yeah. pretty flat and lots of sand. And once you cross that mountain range, you can pretty much guarantee 90% of the vehicles you pass will be a Land Cruiser of one variation or another. So what's been your favourite Land Cruiser then? Well, I'm driving a 300 series now and it's pretty damn good. So you got to talk about this. Yeah, because we, we don't, we don't, have, we don't yeah, get it. We're not going to get it here. I guess we're going to get the Lexus version, but LX it's pretty yeah. different. Yeah, we, we don't get the lockers. Yep. We don't get the EKDSS, mm. the diesel like you do. Yeah, no, it's a beast. It's um like I've had I've had all of them and the, t- the last cars, the 200 series that we had were really good. You know, the V8 twin turbo, yeah. plenty of power, quite comfortable, but the 300 is just that next step up. You know, they've had 12 or whatever years to, to refine it and it's, you know, it's got the EKDSS and it's, the ride's amazing. The interior, they've really stepped up. You know, the interior is quite high end now. It's got adjustable suspension so you can have comfort mode if you feel like it or you can have <laughs> sports plus or custom or whatever it may be. That's pretty 
pretty cool. <laughs> it is pretty cool. And, you know, we, you've been there, Scott. You've been there, Matt. You know, the, the corrugations out, oh, out west and up north can be pretty severe. You know, you can be driving on corrugated road for a couple of days solid. I remember one time we were on the road north of Adels Grove that goes up towards, uh, you know, heads up, up north. the Gulf, yeah. Yeah. And I took a beer can and I put it in between the corrugations and I like got down on the ground and I'm like, I can't see the beer can anymore. <laughs> it's that deep. Yeah, yeah they're big. And they you shake know. everything to pieces. Yeah. You know? So we did, actually, I got the car just before Christmas and we went for a run up to a place called Lawn Hill, which is sort of remote northwestern Queensland. And most people don't go there at that time of year because it's 45 degrees Celsius plus. Sure. But I said, well, we're going there because there'll be no one else there. <laughs> and there wasn't. We did about 9,000 Ks of that trip and we were getting about 10 and a half litres for 100 Ks, which is amazing economy for a car of that size. And, you know, we weren't nursing it. So, um, and they're know. running a V6 diesel yeah, hybrid? Yeah, no, just V6 diesel twin turbo. Okay. So more power and torque than the V8, a lot more comfort, comfortable ride, mm-hmm. and just an all-around much better vehicle, really. You know, there's a lot of kickback from people with the V8 saying, oh. I don't know. It looks great. I think, a, it looks, I think it looks better. I think all the technology they brought in it, factory available lockers now, yeah. it's just so much better. Yeah, it, it's a nice car. But my favorite of the lot is my 1943 Jeep, you know. <laughs> you've actually got to drive that thing you know the, the cruiser you, you're almost sitting in your lounge chair watching there is it not TV. a photo that exists of you driving that jeep where you are not grinning ear to ear <laughs> like with bugs sticking out of your yeah. teeth and everything i mean i remember when you first bought it it was some it was a crazy story you were just going to have one for a, like a prop yeah and they couldn't deliver it and then you uh you bought one yeah well we when we were doing we actually make, we're going to make a video for sema for the first year at sema and the storyline was that we had a um, there was a World War che- a, a jeep bogged in the jungle up in North Queensland. We went up to Cape York to film it, and so we had a couple of um, Islander guys who were the natives who find the Max tracks washed up on the beach. There's a jeep stuck in the jungle full of coconuts and <laughs> coconut palm fronds and. They find it and they, they go and stick the Max tracks in and back it out onto the beach and drive away. And I had the, the actors organised, I had the film crew organised and we, were, we had them flying into this remote airport and I had a couple of mates coming up in their cars to be support. We were leaving on the Thursday to go to the Cape to meet these guys on the Monday and last minute the guy that was going to lend me his Jeep said, oh, I can't do it, I've got a family thing, can't do it. So madly got on the, the web and found one in Rockhampton which is on about halfway up, up the coast and this guy had How one. Lucky. And he, yeah, this guy had one and he said, oh, yeah, it's it's not registered, but I can get it registered. So we got there on the Friday afternoon. I said, well, can you get it registered on Friday? I don't want to be at the transport department trying to register a seven-year-old Jeep that's left-hand drive, no doors, no seatbelts, you know. And so he did that. We got there, took it for a drive around this new estate up the hill and um, put it in low range and, and just went, yeah, here's the money. You know, we're, see you later. So we took it up and we did the ad. We made sure we had the ad in the can before we finished. And then we <laughs> finished, we did the rest of the Cape in the Jeep and drowned it in one of the rivers and revived it and drove it and just went, well, I got back from the Cape and my wife said, so are you selling that Jeep? I said, no way in hell. <laughs> that Jeep's going nowhere. <laughs> and you still have it. I still have it. Yeah. So it's, it's done a few, we've done a few big trips and it's been to the Cape again and it's been across the Simpson and it's. <laughs> It's been across the Great Australian Bite, the trip we did. We've taken a lot right. across there. I remember that. Yeah. And, you know, it's been to Fraser numerous times. And we also have a couple of other sand islands off the coast of Brisbane that we take it to. And, and you know, at the Glasshouse Mountains, as you yeah. said, Matt. And, um, yeah, it's just it's just so much fun. You know, you can't help but smile. Everyone that drives it. I remember, I remember the, the motor not running, putting it in low range, and then you turning it, moving it forward by the starter once. <laughs> I mean, it's just such a different vehicle yeah. to what we get these days. Yeah. It's amazingly capable, though. For something that's that old, yeah. they they just nailed that design. Like it, sometimes it puts a land cruiser to shame. You put it in some some situation. Well, I mean, there was genesis for all of those things, yeah. right? They saw this. You know, I mean, the, the original the Land Rover yeah. was. It wasn't the original Land Rover built on a Jeep on a chassis from a Jeep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great machine and it's just, yeah, it's so much fun to be driving along the beach, you know, at, at 60 mile an hour with no doors, no windscreen, no seatbelts, you know. <laughs> no roll bar, no, 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 no. And a special thanks to Onyx Maps for supporting this week's podcast. For me, being prepared is all about having the right tools. One tool I use is the Onyx off-road map and navigation app on my phone. I use it to find trails and off-grid camping, and I use the fully functional GPS when I'm out of service. We all know that's usually where the best parts start. It's intuitive to use and lets me find open trails anywhere you want to explore with just the tap on the map. Access detailed trail information like difficulty ratings, duration, clearance level, open and closed day, trail photos, and more. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are very helpful for when I want to try to find off-grid camping. And like I said before, I want to make sure that this sticks. It has offline map. This feature allows me to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when I'm out of cell service. Your phone's internal GPS will give you full navigation capabilities offline, so you always know where you are and how to get home safely. Use code Overland Journal today to save 20% off. I think the really cool thing is like you always kind of describe Australia as a bit of a nanny state, you know, it's yeah. like you can do this, you can't do this, you can do this, jump this high, whatever. But then for some reason, the Jeep is legal. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, <laughs> apparently the rule is if it didn't come with seatbelts, it doesn't have to have them. So yeah. I've been pulled up by the police a few times and they're like, where's the seatbelts? I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> this car's 75 years old. <laughs> so, so when I roll it, I'm kept in the car and yeah. crushed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That is such a fun vehicle that you've got. What other thing, vehicles or or equipment that have just delighted you like that? Other things that you've had in your travels? 40 series cruiser. And, you know, most of my cars have been for, for, for work purposes, you know, for, for big stuff. I've had a good 100 series that was the original one, and that's 2005. No, sorry, it wasn't the original, but 2005. Yeah, because you rolled series. that yeah. up north. Yeah, well, we had a collision with a sleeping driver on a bridge. The sleeping driver that's, wasn't me. You, you didn't <laughs> roll it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I had the family in the car. It wasn't, wasn't very nice, but um, we got out of it. I think if we were in a car, we probably wouldn't have, but um, in a cruiser, you know, we this guy fell asleep and cleaned us up and we rolled down the highway about 10 times and ended up on the wheels and thankfully no serious injuries. Uh, the car was a write-off though. But um, yeah, so the 100 Series, is um, that's been the workhorse pretty much since day one. It's done a lot of miles and just reliable, you know. We did some testing. Um, the Australian Army invited me out when they were implementing or they're doing the G-Wagon mm. testing program and they rang me and said, oh, um, you know, we're going to be doing this testing trip through the Simpson Desert uh, and we're going to put Max Tracks on the vehicles. Do you want to come and make sure we're using it properly? And I was of course, hand straight up. You know, I'm there. I'll meet you in Ella Springs. And so we did this. We did this trip the first time, and there was a few mechanical issues with the with the G wagons. And at that stage, the, the cruiser. This was end of 2012. So you know, the cruiser was seven years old at that stage and done quite a few miles. And you know, across the Simpson Desert, cross country, no worries at all. No no mechanical issues. You know. Um, and then we did another one with 10 G wagons in um, February the following year. So you know, the hottest t- time of the year. Same deal. You know, the G wagons. Pretty much every G wagon had some other issue and um the, i still love them the cruiser they look great but uh <laughs> give me a land cruiser anyway so the, you know the old the old land cruiser just did it again you know no issues amazing so um you know i probably i've spent probably more time in that car than any of them you know it's sitting in the garage at the moment every time i walk in i'm like i should take it for a drive but <laughs> i hop in the 300 and go oh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. uh, i think it understands yeah i think it might yeah. it's in retirement now <laughs> yeah it's living a nice life up on the beach yeah <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Gets polished yeah. on Tuesdays. I drive in one of the six-wheel drive uh, long-range patrol vehicles when we're doing the G-Wagon testing and, and you know, in that rough terrain – 
because in the middle of the Simpson, you know, we were going cross country and a lot of it's moguls. So, you know, there's a shrub and the sand's blowing from away. So you're driving through and it's it's walking pace. You know, you can't drive any faster because it's just so rough. And, you know, I'm in the, the wagon and getting belted around and then I hopped in one of the G-Wagons and the difference was amazing. When we finished those trips, I said to this friend who'd set up this business doing six-wheel drive conversions with the aim of building some six-wheel drive Land Cruiser patrol vehicles for the military, I said to him, well, you know, if you wait for the military to order you or go bankrupt, it'll take it'll take you 10 years before you get a military order. I said to him, well, build me a six-wheel drive 200 series. So we did. You know. Was that the first one? Yeah. So, um, and I got the number plate 6WD because every time we pull up somewhere, people would go, is that a lazy axle? Yeah. <laughs> is that a real six-wheel drive? <laughs> yeah, it's a real six-wheel drive. And it was, you know, it's great for that sort of long-distance expedition expedition stuff. You know, you can carry five five adults and all the gear um, and do it comfortably and, and go anywhere, basically. Yeah, I was so impressed with how that vehicle did because we were remote when we did the Australian bite. I mean, it was tight trails and yeah. really remote. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good machine, but... A little bit on the thirsty side, especially when we're paying the price of fuel that we do down there. Yeah, <laughs> sure. You were saying it was like 30 litters. Yeah, when we, we did the Madigan line. Mick, that friend of mine who was building the, the long-range patrol vehicles based on a, on a 70 series cruiser, he wanted to test his vehicles on the same route that we did the G-Wagons. And so we're doing that and some they had some issues or they had some problems and they had to wait in Alice Springs. So a friend of mine... Um, and I went solo through, across the Madigan line in the six-wheel drive, and we were we were using 35 litres for 100k. Someone had towed a trailer across and just chewed the dunes to pieces. Uh, so you know, it's uh, it was pretty rugged. Yeah, you know, it's a heavy vehicle. It's about five tons. So. so it's like a TRX. Probably. 40, I think the TRX 40, 40 would have done years. a little bit better in the dunes. Yeah, well, <laughs> you jump from one to the next. I think we should talk about what the Madigan line is for people that don't necessarily know yeah. what it is. I mean, it's obviously, it's a remote northern route across the Simpson Desert. Yeah, so the Simpson Desert's one of those bucket list items for people in Australia with a four-wheel drive. You know, it's um, it's about 600 k's across. It's the world's largest parallel sand dune desert. So there's about 1,100 parallel sand dunes that run south, south, southeast to north, northwest. And on the eastern side in Queensland, they're sort of really high, maybe 60 metres high and two kilometres apart. And then as you get further across the desert, they get lower and closer together. So it's a bit of a challenge. Everyone that's got a full drive, it's, you know, I want to do that before I die. And there's a few routes across. Most of them were put in by mining companies looking for oil back in the 50s and 60s. So there's a couple of routes that most people take. But the Madigan line... You have to get permits, you have to get permission from the traditional owners to cross their lands and it's fairly remote. Most people don't go that way. It was put in, it was actually plotted by an explorer called Cecil Madigan. He was an Antarctic explorer originally and then he did a camel trek across there in the 1930s. It's named the Simpson Desert after the manufacturer of washing machines who was the president of the, of the South Australian Geological Society, <laughs> Geographical Society, sorry. And um, so he named the named desert. after a yeah. washing machine. Yeah, Simpson is the desert named after the washing machine. He basically crossed it on cam- on camels and his camps were plotted some years later by one of the four-wheel drive clubs way back in the day. And so there's a star picket with a sign saying Camp 16 or whatever it may be. Amazing. So it's basically drive across the desert and just join the dots. And, you know, these days with GPS, it's quite easy to navigate. But back in the day, it would have been, you know, on a compass bearing and, and you know, you can't drive straight on sand dunes. So no. quite challenging. So not a lot of people have done it. Um, and now with some of the restrictions, it's it's becoming more and more difficult to actually get a permit to do it. That's so one of those things where it just feels, and for me, I love that sense of remoteness i just love that there's no other human being for however many hundred kilometers recharging yeah it's just i think when you're in those environments everything's sent your height your senses are all heightened you know you you hear everything you smell everything you know it's just one of those places where you feel alive yeah. and for me i do i just that that really brings me to life when i'm out there and that's why i enjoy it i suppose i just any chance to go on a on an expedition i'm there 
Yeah. And the other one, is it the French line? Yeah, the French line goes. Kind of the standard. Yeah. That's more, crossing, of, a, more yeah. of a standard crossing. Yeah. I mean, not that it's still not fun and amazing and that you shouldn't do it when we say standard crossing. Yeah. Still it's, big. It's still a, it's still a challenge for most yeah. people that have never done much sand driving. You know, it's um same thing. You're still crossing 1,100 sand dunes, but it gets a lot more traffic, so you have to be aware of oncoming traffic over yeah. the dunes. Everyone's on the same radio channel. And then there's another road sort of down the bottom of the desert called the Rig Road. And right. that, was, that was actually put in for the drilling rigs to get out into the desert. So it was mm-hmm. they clay-capped all the dunes, so they dug the clay out of the clay pans and capped the dunes, but that's all eroded in the last 60 years. So sure. that's pretty challenging as well, but. Yeah, the yeah. Madigan's probably the, the toughest route across the Simpson, but the most fun. Yeah, and what's the what's the track that goes north? That the, the Canning Stock? No, 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 no. In it, the Simpson, there's the, the Hay Simpson. River. Hay River, and yeah. And there's the yeah. K1 line. Yeah. And then there's the Colson track that runs on the western side. Colson track, that's the one I'm doing, because you've done that one mm. before, right? Yeah, done pretty much all of them a few times. <laughs> it's one of my favourite places too, the Simpson, because it is that, it's that sense of, it's that excitement of heading into the wilds, you know, yeah. where you're self-reliant, you know, you have to you have to be on your game and you have to be careful and, you know, be well prepared and, and know what you're doing because, you know, you can come to grief. Yeah. People have come to grief out there. Well, and if I remember, you were in a UTV one time and nearly came to grief. Yeah, well, it was funny. We um, we were testing the six-wheel drive Land Cruiser patrol vehicles and we'd come in from the French line heading north to there's a there's a, a tripod in the middle of the desert, the geographic centre of the desert, and the plan was to get to that tripod and then get to the Madigan line, which is about 100-something k's further north, and then head out towards Alice Springs in the, in the middle of Australia. We had a cameraman with us who was filming it for the – you know the the content and the commercial for the for the product. The guys that we were travelling with are army, so six o'clock in the morning they're gone, and we'd had a late night editing and downloading footage and stuff, and and we got to bed at midnight, and so we wake up and they they're up the track somewhere. So I got on the radio, I said, you know, do you want to wait for us because we're trying to film this? You know, we, this is a bit we want to film going cross country through the middle of the Simpson Desert, and they said, oh, we'll wait for you anyway. Long story short, the cameraman and I were in the in a razor. Polaris Razor and got separated. And Who was it again? Oh, a mate called Tom. Okay. Yeah, yeah it wasn't yeah. Geordie. Okay. We got to the point where we were following tracks and then the tracks split because there was two other vehicles and three other vehicles, sorry, and they split and we went left and off we went, followed this track and after about an hour and a half it petered out and we sort of, and I went, mm, I don't really want to backtrack, but I like backtracking. So I just went and I had I had a had my phone with uh, the HEMA Maps app on it. Uh-huh. And I knew we were about 100 k's sort of south, southeast of the geocenter. And I said, we'll just head north, northwest, you know, and we'll get there eventually. <laughs> and the guy that was with me was sort of like, really? <laughs> so um, after about five hours, we got to this we got to this area and it's hard to believe, but it looked familiar. You know, it's all, it all looks the same. But I got to this part and I just had this sense that this looks a bit familiar from when we we're out there with the G-Wagons. And because we'd been there in the G-Wagon convoy. So I said, I think we're getting close. So I turned the phone on. And we were about five kilometres east of the geocenter. So we drove across to the to the, the tower expecting these guys to be there and they weren't there. <laughs> and, and the guy I was with was starting start to panic a bit. Like we're in the middle of the Simpson, literally the centre of the Simpson Desert. <laughs> this is remote. And we're it, we're it. And we had, we had water but we didn't have any food and it was wintertime so nighttime's freezing. Sure. So we only had T-shirts and shorts on and it was like, what are we going to do? And I said, well, you know, we'll we'll gather up some firewood, which is not a lot of it. It's basically just spin effects. So I said, we'll just get as much stuff that could burn us possible while it's daylight you don't be walking around in the dark with snakes everywhere so i said we'll get as much stuff as we can we'll build a pile and then we'll just set the fire point the car in the direction these guys will be coming from take we took the seats out sat them in front of the car because it was quite breezy and just lit the fire and just sat there and waited you know and then about nine o'clock at night we saw headlights 
crest of June and it turns out they're about 20 kilometres away and they took about another three hours to get to us. But the whole time we were there, I was just thinking this is, you know, the moon was half and it was just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, this is, I was just thinking this is amazing. He was starting to panic and he said, you know, what, what are we going to do if they don't come? I said, oh, we'll be fine. You know, I said, we've got five wheels on the razor. We can burn as smoke signals if we need to. And, <laughs> and then a jet flew over between probably Alice Springs and Sydney and I said, you know, we're going right SOS in, in sticks on the on the clay pan and light that at about 8 o'clock tomorrow night. They might see it. Go, there's a couple of idiots down there lost, you know. But um, it all turned out for the best. They came They came and arrived at about midnight and I, I sort of said, I was I was hoping you guys wouldn't come for a couple of days. I was I was loving it. Yeah, but and that was just, I mean, that's just probably experience that I didn't panic. I just went, you know, we've got to get there and this is how you do it. You know, just navigate by the sun and, you know, pull out the technology when, when you can. Yeah, because you didn't want your battery to go. Yeah, well, I didn't have a charger, so the battery was about 10% on the phone, so I was turning it on and checking and turning it off and, you know. Brad now compulsively <laughs> brings chargers with him everywhere. <laughs> well, the ironic thing was we had a bug out bag with a sat phone, an EPIRB, flares, you know, fire lighting equipment times three, all that sort of stuff, and it was in one of the cars. <laughs> you can be prepared and then things can still go pear-shaped. But yeah, I think, that's right. I think the thing is it's experience um, and it's not panicking when you're in those situations where, you know, it could it could have turned bad. It could have been really bad. If yeah, sure. If they couldn't have found us, who knows? I mean, it would have been, you know, as I said, lighting the tires on fire and then lighting the buggy on fire. And then if that didn't work, you know, walking back along our tracks to the to the main track. Right. And hoping that someone came along in the next week or so, you know. So, um, yeah, it yeah. pays to be prepared, but sometimes you've just got to use the old grey matter as well. And do you still use, uh, do you still drive UTVs at all? Yeah, there's not, I mean, you can't drive them legally in Australia most places. You know, there's yeah. properties where you can take them and drive them. There's a lot of cattle stations that, that are the size of small countries that you can drive around. And I just remember we were at sand dunes in the south by the Great Australian Bight and you're, you were going to demonstrate a rollover. Yeah, I think it's I break it's the first, it's the, it's the first time. It's the first time. No, he's what he said. He says, I'm going to go roll the UTV. We, we're going to test some of the gear and we're going to do a winching exercise. So I thought, well, we'll just roll the razor over and we can just winch that back on its wheels. But I hit the, I hit it a little bit hard and <laughs> over I went and cracked a couple of ribs. So I had, had broken ribs for the rest of the trip across the bar. I remember that. Yeah. That's the second time that's broken my ribs, I think. <laughs> that's why I was wondering if you still drive them. Yeah, yeah we call that buggy tippy because it's been on its roof that many times. <laughs> well, it, it, was, it rolled over one time when the, one of the other guys was driving. Yeah, you yeah. just told, And you told him, you said, it's going to roll over really easy. And sure enough, yeah, that was good. Yeah. Now I get to drive occasionally. It's, it's always fun. But yeah, the Jeep's still a favorite. You've obviously had some, some changes. You have more time in your life now. What's like, what's next? Like, not next, like business idea or whatever. I want to know where you're going next, and I want to know how I come with. Well, I think you know, I've got as I said early on, I've got that DNA. You know, I I've got that explorer gene. I remember a while back they they isolated a gene, and and it's the risk taking gene, and it's only twenty percent of us have it. And our ancestors were the ones that went out of the cave and looked over the hill and, and brought back there? and brought back the food. You know, and um, or sailed a boat all the yeah, way to Australia. Yeah, yeah exactly, sure. exactly. Those people with that adventurous spirit, and and I've got it. And you know, I I sort of class myself as an explorer because. I it doesn't matter to me whether I'm exploring a desert or an island or a jungle or a city, you know, it's exploring, it's new things, it's new encounters, it's new people, it's new environments, new wildlife, you know, that whole thing is just novelty, I suppose. Mm. Um, I can't get enough of it. So I've got a, now that I've got a clean empty calendar, you know, yeah. there's, there's a lot of places on this big, big blue ball that I want to have a look at and, and experience for myself firsthand. Um, you know, that trip that you and I did to Namibia and that yeah. beginning just before COVID. Just like opens your eyes yeah. to like. Yeah. That was the last time I saw you was in Namibia. Yeah. I just realized yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, things like that where it's just so different. No, it, was to South, where, it was South Africa. We were in South Africa together after Namibia. Right? Oh, that's right. So yeah. it was after that. Yeah. 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 So those new experiences, new new places, totally different to where you live, you know, new cultures. I just 
I just love it. So girlfriend and I are going to Italy for a month in August and then when we come back, I'm sort of planning a Trans-Australia trip um, from the East Coast to the West Coast straight through the middle in probably September, October. Yeah, so, and, you're, and you're like messing around with van life now too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, we were up north North Queensland in September last year and there was a young couple that pulled up in one of the campsites and they had Max tracks on the roof. So I went up and said good day and had a chat and gave them a couple of key rings and stickers and patches and um, I said to them, where are you heading, where you been? And they're doing the lap of Australia having a year off and COVID, perfect timing, you know. They said, you know, we're, we're doing the lap, we're going to go down to Melbourne and then we're going to basically offload the van. We're going to Tassie and we're going to offload the van. Pardon me. And I said, uh, yeah, I'll be interested in buying it off you if, you if you're keen. So it's a Mercedes Sprinter short wheelbase 4 by 4 And I went, that's that's the way to travel. So um, I said, leave it in Tasmania. I've got a friend who's got a house in Tassie. And so they left it down there and I, we did the did the deal and um, went down in um, April and drove around for a couple of weeks in Tasmania. And it so was, good. Oh, it's fantastic. You know, yeah. the, the weather in Tassie can be, it's an amazing place, but it can be sketchy. You know, we had pretty good weather, but to be able to just pull up somewhere, I'm in a bed, not have to worry about setting up a tent. Doesn't yeah. matter if it's raining, if it's snowing, if it's blowing a gale, it's pretty good way to travel. Yeah. A bit bit better than, you know, sleeping on a stretcher next to the Jeep. And then we talked a little bit at lunch. You you did a little sailing recently and that was fun. Yeah. Well, we, it's a couple of years back. We, uh, we, I've always wanted to do the Whit Sundays. Like the Whit Sundays is a bunch of about 74 islands off the central Queensland coast. So beautiful chain of islands and it's very popular for sailing holidays and you can sail yourself. You say so you charter the boat and you can grab half a dozen friends and just go where you like for a couple of weeks. And so we did that and you had to have a, uh, have some sailing experience before you could do it. So we went, uh, three, three of the crew and I went and did a, a sailing course a couple of weeks before so that we could rent the boat. We're out on Morton Bay off Brisbane and the day we went out, it was blowing 35 knots and we were the only boat out there and we're in a monohull. Yeah, the guy gave us the basics and then let us go and we just... We were just skipping across Morton Bay at thirty-five knots. So I was just thinking, this is this is this is great. This it is, is it's a it's a whole it's other world. It's a whole yeah. other world. So you know, that's potentially in the future is something on the water. You know, I've got a jet ski that I go out. There's a little island off the coast that I go out to occasionally, and you can snorkel and dive and Amazing. swim around, and you know, lots of marine life and that. But uh, and that's easy because it's. Are, aren't you running the thing up to Morton? Yeah, we've been across the Morton Island a couple of times. That's like a pretty serious crossing. Yeah, it's about probably 25, 30 k's across the bay. How Which, long does it take on your jet ski? Oh, you've got a, you've got a pretty big one. Yeah, it's about half an hour okay. if it's if it's calm. If it's and it, the thing with Morton Bay is it can chop up really really badly. Okay. So you've got to go early in the morning and sort of get back before lunch because you know the breeze comes in and turns it into a washing machine in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's one of those things. And same thing, it's exploring. You know, there's a nice river near where I am, and you can drive fifty k's up this river on the on the jet ski. So is it's that Nusa, um, Nusa River? no, the Marucci River. Okay, you know, so you've you've got a lot of. Um, natural environment there there's, there's bits of it where you go up these little creeks and you could be in the amazon you know and it's in the, in the backyard so it's that explorer you know it's i get yeah. on a jet ski and i go what's up there and what's out there and and you know it's i can't help myself that explorer gene you know somebody told me a long a long long time ago it stuck with me because you see correlation between like well for you like father and daughter i think it's so cool that lauren's out there and her sprinter doing the same thing and you know like ray highland with his kids doing yep. the same thing like it, it is it, it's a certain person mm. that just has to go yeah you know yeah you can't help yourself i mean yeah. my eldest daughter she as you said she's doing the van life thing she's been on the road for about six months traveling around australia yeah. and her sister went down and spent a month with her doing south australia and, and the red center 
recently. So um, yeah, they've got it. But I mean, they were they were camping with us when they were babies. You know, I think yeah. the first time we went to Fraser Island, Lauren was about six weeks old. First you're, time, you're, you're her first me, trip to Fraser. Tell me that story where they they were going where they going up to Cooper PD or something. Yeah, they take this dirt track that's like a hundred k's long, and it's like I don't know, we might make it. I'm like, yeah, she's definitely my. <laughs> she wasn't too perturbed. I said, just ring me when you get to the other end. When you get to a town and you got network, just give me a call to make sure you got through. Otherwise, I'll have to drive down there and get you. <laughs> This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. You know, there's a couple of things that we like to ask the people that come on the podcast. One of them is, are there any books that you have found in your life or business or travel or anything else that you've, you've real other than the ones that you've written yourself, but is there, is there a book that you, you've really kind of identified with? There's quite a few, actually. It's hard to nail one down, but being an explorer, I like to read about the explorers. So I've read a lot of the journals of some of the Australian explorers and, mm. you know, Australia is a pretty tough country to explore on foot back in the day, you know, before aircraft and, and all that. So Edward John Eyre, who went through the middle of Australia, mm. um, John McDowell Stewart, Matthew Flinders, some of the navigators. Yeah, you know, Matthew Fl- Flinders is an amazing guy. Yeah. I mean, James Cook that sort of yeah. discovered the East Coast. All of those guys, Captain Bly, you know, William Bly that survived that mutiny on the bounty in, in Tahiti back in the day. You know, those guys, I've read all the journals and all the books about those guys. And I sort of, a lot of my friends have said, you were born 200 t- years too late. You know, you should have been born when those guys were out there because you've you've got the same genes that they had. So a lot, a lot of those books that I've read over the years, you just, for me, like John Eyre that walked across the, the track that we did across the bite, he basically walked that in the height of summer, barely survived, but did it on foot. You know, 1,700 kilometres. Unbelievable. So you read those stories and you just go, for me, the beauty I think of Australia is you can go to those places that are in these journals that these guys are discovering firsthand and it's the same. 250 years later, yeah. you're looking at the same scenery that one of the early explorers saw and nothing's changed. Yeah, you, know? like you can still go see like trees where like Burke and Wills like etched their stuff yeah. into. Yeah. yeah, so for me, that's probably one of the thrills is to be in one of those places where Captain James Cook stood on that hill in 1770 and looked up the coast and saw this and I'm looking at the same view and it hasn't changed in 250 mm. years. I mean that, and a lot of those places you need a full drive to get to and that's yeah. probably for me that's that's why i got a four-wheel drive you know it's not to yeah. put all the gear on it make it look flash and all that it's it's a tool to get me to those places where you can't get in an ordinary view well that's a perfect segue into a, the last question we like to ask which is someone that's getting new to traveling new to overlanding what is a couple pieces of advice that you would give them having seen the world like you have i think it's preparation is key you know, a good vehicle, a good reliable vehicle. You don't need to have 40-inch tyres and 6-inch lift and all that. You know, my first off-road vehicle was a Ford Laser. (laughs) (laughs) And I used to get that that thing stuck a fair bit, you know, because it was never meant for that sort of job. But I used to take it bush before I had a four-wheel drive. Yeah. 
and it, it did the job. It wasn't as comfortable. I couldn't take as much gear, but I used to have a, a sleeping bag in the back, an axe and a shovel, you know, and an esky and a gas stove. And I used to, uh, that was my ex- exploration machine because that's all I had and that's all I could afford, but I still had to get out there and do it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just, it's preparation. The, the vehicle is the key, but you know, you can do it in a stock vehicle. Most places you want to go, you can do it in a stock vehicle with decent tires. You like know? your new Jimneys, your yeah. fleet of Jimneys that yeah. you staged around Australia. Yeah, they're, um, that's an amazing little vehicle. We, we, uh, we built one and we sort of did it as a tribute to the Jeep. So it's, we've called it Jeepney and we've put this, the, the star badges on the side of it and on the bonnet. And um, it's just a great little car. Like it's, it's so much fun, but it's like the Jeep, but you've got doors, windscreen, airbags, radio, air, air conditioning, conditioning sure. a- ABS, you know, you're not going to die. If and you're just rolling. like the Jeep, you drown that one in Nolan's Brook too. True. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not my fault. <laughs> are, we, are we blaming the same person as the Jeep? No, no, it's, it, they, they didn't, they didn't seal the snorkel properly. You know, I mean, I, I think it's cool. You guys have both been a huge inspiration, you know, to me to, to get out and to explore. You know, I guess mine is kind of a, my question is a further refinement of, of Scott's. I think there's more young people that want to go explore now than ever. Because the, I don't want to say the barrier to entry is lower, but it's easier. You know, I mean, we have cars, we have reliable cars, we have all the equipment, all the gear. You know, what's what's your advice for young people that, you know, may get mired in the gear, you know, like, like how do you keep it simple? Cause I think that's one of the things that, you know, I've noticed in your travel style is that you, like you're, you're pretty minimal. Like I wouldn't call you a minimalist, but pretty, minimal. I mean, pretty, pretty minimal. Yeah. I mean, what, what drives you to get out and do it? And how can you offer some advice to the young people to just avoid the stuff and travel? Well, as I said, it's preparation, you know, and it's it's having a bit of an idea. When we do a trip, you know, we say we're leaving Brisbane on this date and we hope to be back by this date. And in between, who knows what's going to happen? You know, we, we work at a rough itinerary and and we we plan to an, to a certain extent, but things can change on a daily, on an hourly, on a minute basis, you know. So you have to be adaptable. But I think, you know, having a good a good vehicle, a reliable vehicle, because the last thing you want to be doing is having to call someone when you when your car breaks down yeah. in the middle of nowhere. So that's probably the key. But as I said, you know, good tyres are one of the main things. The first thing I would do on any vehicle is put decent tyres on it. If you're going to actually use it off-road, mm-hmm. just tyres. And then it comes down to just the basics, you know, not driving too fast. Drive to the conditions. Not driving when you're tired, not driving when you're drunk or you've been on something, you know, and just enjoying it. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if you're going to go spend the money to, to buy the car, put the the gear on the car, go out and enjoy it. You know, mm. you don't have to do a thousand kilometer expedition to have fun. You know, you can drive a hundred Ks yeah. and, and enjoy yourself for the day, but you're out, you're out in the wilds. You're out, of, you're out of the rat race. You're out of civilization. You're surrounded by nature. You might have an encounter with wildlife. You know, you're breathing fresh air. You don't need to take the kitchen sink. Yeah. I take the bare necessities to do the job and it doesn't have to be flashy and it doesn't have to be expensive. It's just as long as you've got the right kit. You can, go. you can do the job and, and yeah, get in the car and go. Well, and it's probably because you didn't spend all that money on the kit early on that you were actually able to go because yeah. you, then you had money for fuel. You had time because you didn't have to work as much. Yep. Yep. And so it made a totally different outcome for you. And the, the classic the example is, you know, I've got a 300 series Land Cruiser and I've got a six wheel drive 200 series Cruiser and my favorite car is a Jeep with no seatbelts, no radio, no air yeah. conditioning, you know, because it's, you're in it. You, so you, pure. You're in the environment. You're surrounded by it. You know, you get yeah. the bugs in your teeth and the, the dirt <laughs> in your eye and you come back and you grin like a Cheshire cat. Well, thanks for lying over specifically for this podcast. We know that's the only reason that you came. Thanks for all that you've done for the community. Thanks for all you've done for me. We've all been on some amazing adventures together and I, I can't wait wait to see what's next. Yeah. I think that we, we, we need to go to the Kimberly. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, for sure. I think we got to make that happen. Yeah, well, I've got a big, long bucket list, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll share that with you. You can see what you can fit in. <laughs> that sounds good. You know, Brad, you've been such an inspiration, and I'm so grateful for you, all of your support through the years. And we're just, we're really proud of you. It's just amazing to see what you've accomplished for yourself and your family and the people that are around you. And we appreciate you being on the podcast and just sharing your experience. It shows that anything is possible with a Jeep, an old flat fender Jeep yeah. and some bugs in your teeth, <laughs> smiling like a Cheshire cat. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah. I yeah. appreciate it. See you down under. And we will talk to you next time.